The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Deutsche Bank CEO John Cryan attempts to get the German bank's house in order. Republican lawmakers finally reveal their plans to defeat Obamacare and what one big asset fund is doing to promote women. Those are the topics for discussion on this week's edition of The Views Room, a conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and I'm joined here with Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hi there, Jen. After years of howling about the inadequacies of Obamacare, Republicans have finally given Americans the big reveal, Trump care. Joining, <laughs> joining us here to discuss the latest plan from Republican lawmakers is Gina Chan in Washington, D.C. and Rob Searin in New York. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks. All right. So there was a huge cat and mouse game for several weeks. No one really had any sort of sense of how Republicans were going to repeal Obamacare. They've been for, what, seven, eight years they've been trying to get rid of this bill. They finally said, OK, here's our plan. And it seems like everybody hates it. So, Rob, <laughs> what is going on and, and what do you make of the plan? Um, there's good reason for everyone to hate this thing. <laughs> it, it's really dog's breakfast, as I declared it uh, when I wrote about it. The Republicans are moving towards offering um, people tax credits for buying health care. The problem is they've put limits on the amount of credits they offer. So for a family of four, at maximum, you can get $14,000. The problem is you can't really buy, especially in some states, you can't buy very good coverage or much of coverage at all for that amount. How much does it normally cost then? For a family of four, the average expenditure is about $25,000. For a family that is um, that is employed, so the employer will pay half of that roughly, um, a bit more and the family pays some of that. The thing is, families on Obamacare typically don't have, they don't have an employer, so they're, that... They're, they're only getting the portion that they would have been given had they got an employer uh, paying the other half. Exactly. But the real problem is that while the plan does offer higher subsidies for people as they get older, the bill also allows insurers to charge a lot more for old people than they were under the ACA. So what that means is that essentially for older people, um, for most of them, they're going to be paying a lot more out of pocket for coverage. What would that mean if you're on uh, Medicare now and you're an older person, say, in your 70s? Does that mean that basically under this plan, your costs would go up? Yeah, eventually, eventually, yeah, they would go up. There are also some other big changes as well, for instance, for Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare, for instance, the part that pays for hospitals is projected to go insolvent in 2028. But the reason that it's 2028 is because under the ACA, there were several taxes put in place that increased money going into, into Medicare. The replacement bill that was put before Congress would, reduce, would eliminate many of those taxes. So that means that Medicare will go, that part of Medicare will go insolvent years earlier. Um, there's also Medicaid. The, the bill would switch to a, a block um, granting uh, reimbursing states per patient. The problem is that they, over time, that amount would go over, go up by only a small amount over inflation, less than medical costs. What that would mean is that in the future, Medicaid patients would be receiving less per patient. So basically, we're talking about a system where, I mean, the problem is that the Republican Party doesn't like the idea of, of socialized health care. And yet socialized health care is the only way really to get enough people involved to cover the costs. I mean, that's what, I mean, insurers are just a privately held version of 
this kind of socialized healthcare. They want enough people to make it work. Yeah, the problem the Republican Party is conflicted in what they want. Some of the hardline people don't want a, a big uh, government program, benefit program. They want to essentially cut this whole thing out. Other people are, are worried that, you know, they're going to have a lot of their constituents are going to lose access to health care. They're worried about that, so they want a more generous system. And between the two of them, the Republican Party can't make up its mind on how to how to replace uh, the ACA. So, uh, Rob and Gina, like, what what's the likelihood that this that this bill actually gets through? I mean, because it seems again like there's there's so much you know so many people are against it. Um, you know, what, what's what's the 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 likelihood that this is really going to happen and that you know Obamacare will be basically repealed? Well, House Republicans, um, or I should say the leadership, is um, moving forward with this despite all the opposition. We have two committees who are considering the bill um, as uh, part of its process of uh, eventually voting on it to get it out of the panels and and through the, the House floor. President Trump is holding sort of full court press on sort of a a charm offensive, if you will. He's having a meeting with conservative leaders in the White House. He's having former uh, campaign rivals, Senator Ted Cruz uh, and his wife over for dinner. That'll be a fun conversation. The good old primaries. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They can reminisce about the good good times they had (laughs) during the campaign. He's at least publicly saying he's fully behind this and will put the weight of the White House behind his lobbying efforts. The problem is, is, as Rob pointed out, all the issues that various constituencies have. And if you sort of bend on one area, it will affect possible support or even more opposition on on the other side. Uh, And this has broader ramifications for um, not just this repeal plan, but Trump has sort of billed himself as the ultimate negotiator and talked about how his predecessor was so bad at making deals. But Trump really uh, needs a win on this if he's also going to move forward on his tax reform plan and infrastructure spending, which is also already seeing infighting among Republicans. I mean, that's that's part of the problem, isn't it, that the Republicans and Trump have backed themselves into a corner in many respects. So, you know, the Republicans in Congress, because for years they have said, we don't like this, we don't like this, we have better ideas. Uh, And, you know, Trump, because he said we want this done really quickly uh, and it belongs to the Democrats, they will own this mess uh, of Obamacare. And yet, as he himself said last week, finally said, oh, this is exceptionally complex. So basically, I mean, the Republicans now own the repeal. And they own the mess that may come from it. So that's got to have a fair number of them worried that if it's not done properly, it's going to be a mess. And it does seem, I don't know what you feel about this, Gina and Rob, but it feels like they're rushing this through. Yeah, rushing it through. Yes, they certainly are. <laughs> what was it you saying in your piece that, that they may even try and push this through before it's even costed out by the CBO? The CBO would offer, you know, they analyze the package and say how much it would cost. Um, but they're rushing it through. So it's, it's unclear how much it'll cost and how many people will lose their coverage which seem like salient points. Well, they've also said no one should lose their coverage and they've gone on about the costs being so high already under Obamacare that if they go, costs go up, then <laughs> what a mess. Yeah, well, in terms of the, the rushing it through, I think it's partly because they've been under so much pressure to show something, to put something on the table, because as Rob said, they've 
this is something they've been um, complaining about for uh, for years now, and they finally have a chance to to show their cards and and see what their brilliant alternative is. And so uh, they were really under pressure from the White House as well to finally put something on the table that they could work with. And unfortunately for them, um, the, the reception has been uh, less than welcoming. Well, well. also, I mean, they just seem remarkably unprepared. I mean, they've had years to, to think about this and just kind of, again, they, they haven't revealed anything. They were playing this cat and mouse game with um, other members of Congress, hiding it. No one knew what was in the bill. It wasn't Rand Paul going around with a photocopier trying to find a, a yeah, they, they <laughs> copy of it. They they plunked this bill down. I think during a press conference, they they wheeled out this tiny little table and they they were trying to make visuals of it. Where like, the Obamacare bill was like you know hundreds of pages more than what they were proposing. But you know, and then we have congressmen coming out saying like, oh, don't buy an iPhone. You know, that's that's going to be you know your sacrifice. Um, they just seem remarkably unprepared for you know something that again they've been going on and on about this for years. I mean, Actually, it's, it's, say, it's shocking to me. I don't know if you saw Sean. Spicer, the, the president's press secretary, earlier this week was saying, he, and, you know, like you said, that the, the big pile of papers for Obamacare and the, the, the thin wad for Republicans changes. And he said, this is government. He said, uh, putting his hand over the top of, the, of Obamacare. This is not, he said, putting his hand <laughs> over Republicans. It's like, dude, that is going to come back and haunt you if this thing goes belly up. It really is. Yeah, no. Well, as you say, that in terms of their lack of preparedness, um, I think it just shows that, yeah, it's a lot harder to actually get things done and to create things and do things than to be against it. And they've, you know, been in the opposition for years and sort of that's their prerogative. But uh, now they've made a big deal about how they control the Congress and the White House. And so they're going to get things done and show that government can work. And so far, I think they, you know, have failed on that front. Um, All right. Well, fascinating stuff. I'm sure we'll be following more of this. Thank you, Gina. And thank you, Rob, for joining us today. Now we head across the Atlantic to speak to our friend Dominic Elliott in our London office. Hi, Dominic. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks, Anthony. Great to have you on. We've got you on to talk about one of our favorite topics, obviously Deutsche Bank, one of the biggest lenders in Europe, uh, but one that's been struggling for quite some time, not just because of the financial crisis a decade ago, but various other issues as well. And just this weekend, the bank released a plan to raise 8 billion euros of capital and spin off some of its asset management division, thus basically allowing the chief executive, John Cryan, to kind of go back on his word not to raise capital and and, and maybe not... uh, Maybe not even spin off asset management. Dominic, what is good? Just give us a, a bit of an overview here. Why is Deutsche Bank in so much trouble still at the time when many US banks have, have more or less recovered or less, at least in, in a better position than Deutsche Bank? Well, I think we have to start from the, the original sin was that they just did not have much equity at all going into the crisis. I mean, they were very, very thinly capitalized. I think, you know, if you think of the key capital metric that people use for banks, which is uh, the, the common equity tier one ratio, which basically measures equity, mainly equity, but also a little bit of, sort of hybrid debt 
as a proportion of um, assets that are that are you know risk weighted, then it had about a six percent common equity tier one ratio back then. You know at the time of the crisis, it's since doubled that. It's kind of eleven point nine percent as of the end of December. That's almost as much as some of its rivals, um, but it's still probably not quite enough, especially when you consider that in September last year with rumours of a big fine from US regulators in the offing, actually there were questions about whether Deutsche Bank could survive at all and, and maybe it would be pushed into insolvency. So the fact that Deutsche Bank always gets into these legal scrapes means that investors want to have a bit more comfort. So they want a bit of extra capital just in case it gets fined again. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's just, I mean, just on, on, on earnings, I mean, that it's also got pretty poor earnings, right? So it's, its return on equity isn't particularly good, even though it's got one of the relatively lower um, common equity ratios, as you said. So and it's, it's got various issues. But of course, as you're saying, that the, the capital raise is kind of important because it needs to reinforce to its uh, two of its biggest uh, branches, its lenders, the people it lends to, uh, and also the people who want to trade with it, that it's got the wherewithal to survive. But the flip side of that is if you increase the amount of equity in the business, your ability to make returns goes down unless you can find other ways of making money. That's spot on, yeah. And the problem that Deutsche Bank has really is if you think about, if you split it into three different um, constituent parts, which is basically what it's now doing, and those parts being an investment, um, a corporate and investment bank with some transaction banking on the side there. You have uh, an asset management business, part of which, as we said, is being um, you know, sold to investors through a, an, an IPO. And then lastly, a kind of retail bank and, and wealth management arm. Um, Really, the asset management business is the only one that's making any kind of returns that you would regard as healthy in banking. The others are really in trouble. Um, and so I guess the question is, how does it get out of this um, th this mess? And in retail banking, they think that they can get a lot more synergies by uh, integrating what they call their yellow bank, post bank, with their blue bank, which is the kind of Deutsche Bank. It's a slightly higher, um, you know, affluent quality of customer there. Um, but the two have been basically separate. They were going to sell off the post bank bit, but now they've decided, well, maybe we can get enough synergies, cost savings, that is, job cuts. Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 the post bank unit was, I mean, that, that's been a disaster since they bought it um, a few years ago, right? I mean, they basically bought it almost at the behest of the German government and then just weren't able to, to do much with it or weren't able to integrate it. In, in a country where, a bit like America, there are so many banks that really to have any chance of, uh, of a, a division like Deutsche Bank to make money in retail, it really needs to be able to consolidate uh, to buy and merge and get, and get out a lot of costs. And it couldn't do that with post bank. So, so what's changed? Well, there have been uh, some changes in terms of the uh, time it takes to sack people. Most basically, I mean, they've been able to get um, they've been able to get the workers' union to agree to some layoffs finally, which has taken a very long time. So that's one thing that helps. And they're applying for a, a waiver that will allow them to get some kind of balance sheet benefits in terms of liquidity um, usage from the kind of liquid assets that Postbank has. They may not get that waiver, but they're applying for it. So so maybe there's a chance to do something there. And they also feel, this is the spin anyway, that German retail banking, it's been a 
complete disaster from the perspective of returns generally in terms of the industry for a very long time. But because Deutsche Bank has some of these other businesses, you know, it has wealth management, it has a few more sort of fee earning um, businesses, then actually it won't be as affected by the low rate environment as, say, the Sparkassen um, or the Landers Bank, which basically all they do is they, they have lending um, and then they have savings products. So So low rates squarely hits those other banks, whereas perhaps Deutsche can cross-sell some other products to its customers and it will be a relative winner. But even if it is, German banking has not been a great business to be in. No, which is one reason why they went into investment banking big time 20 years ago, right? So I think, you know, at the time, the likes of Barclays and, and Nat West were getting out of investment banking because returns were like 10 or 11% return on equity. Whereas to the Germans, with retail banking earning 5 6%, investment banking was just, what a great way of making money. You get into double digits. Fantastic. Um, but now they're faced with the flip side of that problem, which is you know, equity has gone up, as we said earlier. It's harder to make money. And you know they do seem to be um, a very badly injured bank. So why would investors and traders still go there and still use them? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I, the, the answer, I suppose, would be that what happened with this rumor about the Department of Justice in the U.S. finding them a huge amount last September was that a, a lot of their trading counterparties got scared and didn't want to do any business with Deutsche Bank because they couldn't um, insure against the, the risk of Deutsche Bank going under. It, well, it became very expensive to do that. And the argument that Deutsche has now is that if we raise this equity, um, we'll be viewed as a, a, you know, a better um, credit prospect and therefore we'll be able to at least um, get a, back a bit of the market share perhaps that we lost. Now time will tell if that's right or not but you can see I guess the argument there that um, maybe this was just a temporary loss in market share and maybe if their counterparts think that they're um, a better prospect then, then some of that could come back and that's certainly what they were saying on Sunday. They were saying that they felt pretty good about the start of this year in in trading terms anyway. Right. I mean, is there a sense um, in the market in general that investors and especially uh, traders who want to go through an investment banking house don't want to be left just with American choices? They want to make make sure that there are a couple of European so-called investment banking or trading champions. So that would be what Barclays Deutsche Bank, maybe one or two of the French banks. I mean, is there that sense as well that you know they that, that people who would use Deutsche Bank want to have the option of being on using one in in Europe as well as across the pond? I think that's fair. Certainly, you you hear people say that, and I suppose the the rationale would be that okay, okay, the, the U.S. banks look a lot stronger and you know, healthier from a balance sheet perspective and an earning, earnings um, standpoint. Maybe there's potential political risk in the US or if not now, then perhaps in the future. And so you just want to spread your risk a little bit and not have that too concentrated to a single jurisdiction. And perhaps, you know, European regulators will make life a bit easier for certain types of business. And certainly uh, the European regulators are a bit kinder in, in some ways or or saying that they are inclined to be. So, so yeah, I suppose that's the rationale. It, it does make some sense. The question is, do you need lots of banks? I mean, you were, you were saying, um, obviously, there's Barclays, there's 
SockGen has sort of gone after the institutional clients a lot. What's interesting is that Deutsche Bank is trying to do more with corporate clients in its investment bank. Now, you've got some other choice there. BNP Paribas um, been going into transaction banking in a bigger way. Unicredit is now trying to get a slice of that market too. And then there's HSBC, which is sort of doing that globally. So there are um, certainly... Uh, some rivals that are that, that are not going to just lie back and let Deutsche do you know, what it wants to do there. And is, and is that realistic for Deutsche Bank? I mean, it was known as the great big trading powerhouse for, for years, especially with um, institutional investors and hedge funds. You know, it was one of the major banks behind the CDO mortgage indexes, for example, that, that went so horribly wrong. But it was in many other businesses, mostly it seemed to me, not so much with corporates, but with, with institutional investors. Now they seem to want to switch. Exactly right. I mean, it's the Bankers Trust legacy, you know, the Bankers Trust being the bank that Deutsche bought. That was very much uh, one focused at, you know, the, the buy side, really. I, I suppose that their view is that they need growth. The only way to get growth is by, I guess, doing more. And that's that, that you know, is going to be, they think, a bit easier with corporate clients. They say that at the moment they, they very rarely sell more than one product to um, their corporate clients. Only a third of their corporate clients um, have kind of more than, you know, one line of business with Deutsche. So that's where they see the opportunity being. It's not that they're going to turn their back on hedge funds entirely. It's, it's sort of more an emphasis. So I think they're saying that they're going to increase the proportion of their risk-weighted assets that are focused towards corporate clients from about 55% to 65%. So it's it's playing around the edges. But that's certainly where they see the growth coming from. And certainly with those numbers of, you know, a third of clients that are only using them for one, to- one, one product, does make me, does remind me a bit of Wells Fargo over here, which is also trying to beef up its investment banking units. So, you know, it is not an easy or quick task for, for, for these guys to do. Now, I mean, looking ahead, though, I mean, so you've, you've been through all the issues. So they've raised equity which is going to make it harder to earn a decent return on equity. They are selling a portion of the best business they've got, asset management. Uh, and they're, they've got to struggle to try and grow businesses elsewhere where they're not necessarily uh, at their strongest. Mm. So where does this leave them for the future? I mean, it, it strikes me that we've got a bank that, even though it's recovered from those lows of September, I think the stock's up 70-odd percent since then, but still trades at less than half of book value, which really is investors saying you're never going to get to that magic 10% return on equity number where you beat your cost of capital. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot has to go right for them to get to that 10%. I think they can just about do it. I think this plan makes some sense. I don't think it's the worst thing that they could do. Could they do anything better? I mean, it's it's tricky. The problem is, as you articulated it, that they don't have many businesses that are particularly profitable in it from a returns perspective. I think selling a bit of the asset management business is a surefire way to raise some capital. I do think that capital will help them. So... <sighs> You know, I think if you look back at what John Cryan has done, I mean, he started by thinking he was going to sell off PostBank, that he was going to, you know, he had he'd split part of the investment bank out. Now he's bringing it all back together. And, you know, he was adamant that maybe, you know, they'd get by without raising capital and they didn't really want to sell any of the asset management arm. I think that probably common sense has prevailed you do need more capital to to get investor confidence, particularly after the problems they had towards you know the end of last year with the market thinking, oh my gosh, are they going to survive? And so I think that the new plan does have some chance of success. He hasn't got very many obvious alternatives. 
and it's one of those cases where you know there could be quite a lot of upside it will take a very long time for it to come through however well dominic great to have you back on the show thanks again good to be there thanks very much Asset manager State Street is launching an effort to get more women on boards just in time for International Women's Day this week. Joining us here to discuss it from our New York office is Tom Berkeley, associate editor of Breaking Views. Welcome, Tom. Hi. This is really fascinating to me because State Street is huge, right? How how much do they manage? They're $2.5 trillion. That's no small amount of change. No small amount of change. They are active investors in the sense that they're in a a lot of uh, companies. Um, and to kind of come out and make this stand, basically, where they want to see more women on boards, you don't see this very often from, say, their peers. Well, you don't see it very often here. Clearly, this has been a bigger issue in Europe, where certain countries in Scandinavia, for example, have actually um, man- mandated uh, you know, gender diversity or even sometimes parity in the boardroom. Uh, the success of that has been somewhat mixed. But the uh, studies keep racking up that show that companies that have greater women representation both on the board and in senior management tend to perform better. Whether that's coincidence or causal, you know, is it's not conclusive proof, but certainly the number of these studies have been piling up, and State Street certainly finds them pretty persuasive. With that in mind, what what are some of the things that they can really do? I mean, do, do you expect them to start launching um, proxy fights? Because here's the thing about these types of managers. Like, they're passive by nature and that they don't tend to stir up the pot too much in terms of, you know, when it really comes down to it. What other than just voting against or for something? I mean, do you think that they're going to take their word on this and actually start stirring to become a little more active in this area? Well, they they say they will. Um, I mean, they will want to, given, given that they're passive, they want to work with management so they can't just dump stocks. Like 80% of their assets are managed passively. But that doesn't mean they're without influence. And so they want to engage with companies. They want to encourage uh, greater uh, female participation in the board and in senior management. And they do say they will be willing to wage proxy fights if uh, they get a cold shoulder. Now, they do have some form in this because three years ago they started a um, similar initiative on a more general issue of board refreshment, board tenure. They were worried that a lot of boards had... Uh, you had Deadwood in them. People had been there for years and years, and they weren't really freshening and get, getting the best possible candidates on the board. Uh, in, um, I think it was 2015, they basically either withheld votes or voted against directors at a little over 300 companies. And the following year, more than a third of those companies actually made changes to the boards to uh, freshen it up. So there's some signs that this approach does have some effect. And well, you also looked at State Street itself, is that correct? Its own board and kind of uh, the tenure of the board directors, the makeup of their own board. And they, they have some women on the board. Was it three out of 11? Is three out of 11. Reported? But, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, especially for a company that's prior issue was board tenure, trying to get people out of there for a long time. Uh, one woman, Linda Hill, has been on the board since 2000. She's in her 17th year. So... You know, in their proposal or in their, you know, their, their sort of statement, you know, they say that it's, it's clear that a lot of companies use the um, argument that it's difficult to find women. There aren't that many. And they say a lot of this is really just posturing, that, that a lot of the typical rules or conventions about finding board members, that you go through existing networks, that a board member has to be a CEO or have CEO experience, and by definition excludes a lot of potentially right. well-qualified women. And they say that's not really, um, you know, that's 
that's just not good enough. But their own track record shows that doing this in practice is not quite as easy as, as putting out a policy statement, perhaps, or maybe they're not just living up to their own uh, rhetoric. And, and do you expect other uh, asset managers to kind of join in on this, or do you? Uh, is that typically not how it works? Like, No one has really in the U.S. that I'm aware of has focused specifically on the issue of gender in the boardroom, although others do as sort of a, under their general corporate governance guidance. And what's been interesting, as we've seen over the past couple of years, and we've had this trend where more and more assets are managed passively, but there's still a great concern about good governance and, you know, will that, will that be hurt by all this passive management? And we've seen people like Vanguard, funds like BlackRock, have done their own initiatives to try and improve corporate governance. In those cases, they've tended to look for more generic principles about uh, board tenure, board, board independence. Um, but, you know, they do admit privately that uh, gender is one of the issues they look at, and they want to get good and diverse board members on companies, and they want more independence on boards. Yeah, I mean, and it's a good thing, too, because the, these asset managers own such big chunks of so many companies that, and, and they're oftentimes, you know, the top shareholders in these companies. And if they're not going to be agitating for any sort of change, there seems to be no real, like, yeah. real hope for anything. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like that's positive news all around. All right, Tom, well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Dominic Elliott, Gina Chon, Robert Siren, and Tom Berkeley, and my co-host, Jen Saber. Thanks also to our producers, Bethel Habti and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. We really do appreciate your feedback. Tune in next week for another episode of The Views Room. Thanks for joining us.